0: Hello, and you are most welcome to episode 190 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop board gaming, or board gaming on other surfaces if you want to, or in your mind. My name is Ronan, I am your host today, and this is a Picking Over the Bones episode, meaning I am going to take you through a number of games, share my thoughts on them, having played them, and give them an arbitrary rating out of 100, but hopefully you'll get more from the ramblings than you will from that number, but it's just a bit off. Fun. Thank you very much for joining me. And given that it's coming the run up to Christmas and everyone is super busy, I'm going to crack through this. Talk less, not quicker. There we go. Keep saying that to myself. I might write that on the back of my hand. We're going to kick off. Game number one is Mosaic. One to six players. It is two hours, definitely plus certainly at the higher player counts. The designer is Glenn Drover, a bit of a legend in the industry, and Forbidden Games, the publisher, is his own company in which he has set out to publish the games that he always wanted to publish, and they all come within a concept. The concept of Mosaic is that it is a civilization building game, very limited in its scope. It's not limited in its scope, it's limited in the time in which it covers it is very much in the ancient and classical eras it doesn't go through into gunpowder and uh, knights and feudalism and any certainly any further than that so you're definitely dealing with the first turns of one of those civilization computer games okay how does it all work it's supposed to be quick playing quick playing is in all the actions are very quick and there are eight different actions you can take in terms of the eight actions what you're going to be doing is building up a tableau of cards in front of yourself, but there is a central board you're playing onto which represents the area around the Mediterranean, which is split into different regions. And on these cards that you're building up, technology cards mostly, there are these nine different symbols. They are symbols that are related to different aspects of running a civilization, be it military or economic or science or culture. You get in the idea. What's very clever about it is that It's not one dimensional and the idea of it being called mosaic very much comes through in how you build up your tableau off the symbols and they unlock different things of each other and they power up those eight actions you're going to take and they help you score VP. But the way in which they do it all is not set and rigid and set in stone. I'm going to keep making stupid mosaic references to see how many you can spot. It's not set in stone. It's a mix of different things. So if I go down and I go hard militarily when I'm collecting these cards, and maybe I'm looking to put military units on the board, which you certainly can do alongside towns and cities to give yourself presence in the regions, that doesn't mean I have only got one facet to what I'm doing. There are different shades of it. So I might go strong military and then strong taxation because I'm building up a high population which will help me, uh, your population is sort of your base level of when you want to produce any of the resources, be the ideas or food or stone, which will help you pay for these cards and pay for your buildings onto the board. And if I'm going for a large population and a high military, that is one way I can do it. Or I could go high military and then I could become more trading and I can get lots of trading goods. And then I'm looking at tariffs to make my money. Money being sort of a wild resource you can use to replace any of the others when you want to, like I say, build these these cities or towns on the board or you want to build wonders that are available and wonders will trigger off what path you've gone down in building up your tableau. Some of them want you to be very cultural, some of them will just go back to that military and they're all looking at different ways and it's how you combo up what you're doing in each of these different nine areas and you're going you're gonna to ignore some of them. You're not going to do them all. How you combo together is really interesting. It's not just about I'm painting this all one colour. I'm, I'm, that's it. One way. It's I am mixing together different strategies. And that's one of the most exciting things that I find in Mosaic. In terms of... What are you actually doing in actions? I mean, you're going to produce those resources I talked about. You're going to use the ideas you produce to get these cards to build up where you're going. You could, you could play with no cards, but it just makes you better at doing everything. It just, just helps you out. You're also going to uh, produce food to get more population. Like I was talking about your base of your income. You're going to produce stone which will get you these cities and towns, maybe ports that gets you trade goods if you're doing that. Then when you go to the other action, tax and tariff, like I say, you can choose tariff or you can choose tax in order to make money. When you're using all these resources and getting this presence on the board via your town, cities, wonders or military units, the military units don't actually fight each other. The only time you, military units are eliminated is by direct getting off a card with ideas from the fire of an offer. It's a card that says, where you have military units, eliminate military unit, or your military units can no longer be eliminated. And it's not a big part of the game, that elimination, but it can adjust the balance of power in the regions differently. And why do you care about the balance of power? There are various decks of cards in the game. In four of them, there are these empire scoring cards. Now, where you put them in the deck depends upon the player count. And you have to be very careful with that. I'm going to come back to that in a second. These Empire scoring cards, when they come up, three of the four will be scored during the course of the game. And each region, you'll check how built up it is. And the more built up it is, the more valuable it is to whoever wins the region. And then who's got most presence in these structures or in military units. And the most presence can going to score a load of points a second or get two points every single time. So that's why you want to build onto the board. And you can also take Wonders and Powers, which will score you more points whenever you're scoring in regions. So it's a thing you can drive. I want to be very present on the board. But equally, you can go, maybe I'm going to be a very small empire in terms of board presence, but I'll reach out my fingers in other ways. I'll I'll, I'll use soft power, if you like, and, and I'll be manoeuvring more in these different areas and maybe in the shadows rather than being so obvious on the board as a big power. And what other people are doing is what you don't want to do. You want to be like, okay, you're, you're doing that, you're doing that. You're, like, you're going to fight over that. Maybe I'll just come around the side here and do this. And then I'll make this my speciality. And as long as I can get the right blend of cards, of powers, of wonders, every different strategy appears to be viable. Now, these Empire scoring cards, I said they drive the end of the game. When three of the four come out, that's when it's over. This is one of my major sort of holdbacks with Mosaic is it can go on too long. And I think sometimes the default place where you put the cards in the decks for a full game is just a bit too low down. And then you get into it. And rather than having this interesting swirl of colours in your tableau, and you're like, right, I've got a dash of orange here, a bit of green there, this is how we're trying to make this work. Everyone could go after everything and everything gets taken in the end. So in a quicker game, there are are these achievements. If you get six of a particular symbol, you get to take the achievement, which is cool and scores you points and is very handy. I think if some of them are left over, when the game's over, you've got the right length of game. If you've got to the point where people aren't really doing much and then they're basically all going to get taken by default because I've got to take cards somehow, I've got four of those and my as will try and get for that, i kind of run into a dead end. I feel like the the length of the game has gone wrong. The timing is not quite working in that aspect. Now, the problem is is that (laughs) where you put the cards is different for different numbers of players and not only different numbers of players but the experience of the players... I mean, yes, it is slightly related to experience, but also it's related uh, to competence. And I am terribly, terribly incompetent at the game, and I've never finished even in the first half of players in a game. I'm really bad at it. The problem is, and we talked about this before, is that with sandbox games, I don't feel focused enough. I'm not really goal-oriented. I'm not like, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm going to win. I'm about to go and do that. In Mosaic... Because there's so much you can do, I kind of start off 17 different paths of things of doing. And then I suddenly realise, wow, I've got 17 half-formed ideas here. Kind of the story of my life. And uh, those people over there who followed three or four paths very well have destroyed me. (laughs) It's for me to sort of learn to focus on. But I do so much to explore. I just want to keep exploring. I'm talking as if it's very thematic. I think a lot of that theme has to come from... Yourself and and realizing the mechanical interactions within the game are telling a story within the fact that they are Euro style strategic interactions. You're not pulling a story card out. You're not going to read. There's been a great flood. Da da, da, da. You're not going to read. There's a great battle now in those mountains. Da, da 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 da. The story has to play out in your mind, but it's all there for you. And if you're paying attention and you're looking closely, you'll see the detail. I mean, for example lloyd won our first ever game of it which was very confused and there's a couple of rules wrong stuff like that as, as you'd expect we were learning at a convention but he said I, I don't really know how i won all i did was sort of choose stuff thematically and decide i was going to be a military that marched around this and that and you're like that's brilliant following a path choosing a story for your civilization and going along that story is how you win and uh, that dawned on me i'm like but that's exactly i think what you're supposed to do and he was like he was like Oh yeah, because me and him play a lot of Marvel Champions together and uh, we can't ever play on the hard mode because we don't pick efficient decks, we pick story decks. We're like, oh, this would be funny if that happened or wouldn't it be great? Or this is what this hero would have in their deck, even if it's not great mechanically. And he kind of did that mosaic and it worked out and that really, really appeals to me. And there's a lot good going on here. There's some holdbacks, as enthusiastic as I am. It's a tough learn. It's a long setup. We're having to set all these decks up. We're having to put loads of uh, markers on the board or chips on the board and then flip them all over and then take a load off again. And you do have to do it like that. There's no shortcutting it. It's, it seeds the board with trakers that people don't want to grab for different reasons. And it's so wide open. And there are so many valid paths. Everything you do is, is at least slightly positive. What you're doing is judging how it integrates and fits into the overall pattern of your play. And because when you're first playing the first couple of times, you don't know what picture it is you're attempting to create, what is the story of your civilization? therefore you feel lost at sea when you're making those first choices and you're like, I really don't know. The good news is there are no bad choices. You cannot mess up at the beginning because every single start you make, apart from maybe, like I do, making 17 different starts, but every start you make is valid. If I start going military and let's say Rachel starts going military, and I get behind in pure military terms, that's not the end of the game for me. Because you can't just be pure military. I know I don't get focused on military. I'm just using that example. I could have gone pure economic, or I could have gone pure culture. Let's go pure culture so we get off the military track, okay? Because it's not a very military game. If I've gone pure culture, Rachel's gone pure culture, she's ahead of, and I can see she's going to get the achievement before me. Maybe she's going to get, there are these... um Sorry, it's a golden age you get. Not an achievement where you get those. There are achievements which are a mix of different ones during the game, which you can get, and I'm like, oh, she's going to grab that ahead of me as well. I can always pivot, and I can say, right, along with this culture, I'm now going to go heavy science as well and heavy tariff. And now I'm going to make myself a culturally, scientifically advanced mercantile nation. And I need those different aspects. And that's what's lovely. You can't go wrong. You cannot completely tip it off the side now of course someone's going to win and someone's going to lose you can play better or worse it would be very rare that you can put it down to that one moment where you went i should have just taken that card instead of that card i should have built that city there instead of there yes you will think about those things and gone at the end of the day that's how it's worked out but the story is not told until the whole story is told it's only on reflection that you can look back and go wow yeah that was really well played or i could have done that differently." And it's almost like a different style. You have to get used to it, that you're making these decisions without knowing the full strategy of what's going on. But like I say, creating your own story. I like Mosaic, and I think about it a lot when I'm away from the table. I think that it's much better with more plays. I would love to play it with more players who all knew it and just going, because if you get everyone who's just taking their turn quickly, this game flies by. It's a grower of a game in many, many ways. The story of that particular game grows as you go. It's never set. There's no set pattern whatsoever. How cards come out, how players play, that's what sets the story. Not an internal system, not a rigged deck, not certain events that happen certain times. It is all down to how the players play, how they mix together what they're doing. And that mix will throw up a different picture every single time you play. It's a grower in that every time I play it, I enjoy it more. It's a grower in that I'm going to give it a score. If I do get three or four more plays in before we do our review of 2022, this will just climb up and up and up the rankings. I imagine. I haven't discovered any big problems with it whatsoever. Apart from, like I say, the setup takes a little while. It's just a barrier to entry when you're first getting used to the game. It's a hard start to a first game to have to learn how to do all this stuff and not know where you're going much better to play, I would say, if you can, with someone who knows it, even two or three players who know it. They're not going to have a huge advantage. It's not like you know, like Twilight Struggle. You have to know the deck. You have to know what's coming up. No, no, no. In Mosaic, you decide how the story goes. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love about it. So Mosaic, for now, is getting an 85 from me. Now, if you were going to publish a game and you were going to target it towards me and say, if ever there's a game that Ronan is 100% going to buy and play, its name would be War of the Ring card game. <laughs> it would be for two to four players. It take around 90 minutes. It would be designed by Ian Brody, the quartermaster general man. And It would come from Ares Games because they've got the War of the Rings license and they're the ones that make the big board game and all those expansions. I love card games with different cards, which can be used in slightly different ways. Possibly when you're battling over something in the middle. That's what you're doing here. And I absolutely love the Lord of the Rings theme. So this was it didn't even need treasure hunting, it didn't need anything else. It was an instant order for when I was going to Essen. I was like, yeah, this, this is coming home with me. Absolutely no chance. I was leaving without this. Got it home, played it. How does it all work? Surprise, surprise. There are two sides in Royal of the, Rings, the Car game. <laughs> and they come with set decks with separate factions within those decks. And one is obviously Mordor and Saruman's armies and beasts and stuff like that. And the other one is obviously Hobbits, Elves, Dwarfs, Gandalf, Rohan, Gondor, all those other ones on the other side. You're going to be playing over nine chapters. In each of the nine chapters, there's going to be a couple of battles. Now, One of them is resolved one way over the path. The path is linked to what chapter it is. And both sides are going to look to play cards on their own side of the path Adding power to it, whoever has got the most power, will win the points from the path at the end of the chapter. There will also be one or more battlefields in each chapter. Now, they can be light battlefields or dark battlefields. That just means whoever's defending, who gets a slight edge, they win the tie, basically. On the path, you can only play cards there that are valid to play there during a particular chapter. So, Gandalf the Grey cannot come out later on in the game. Gandalf the White can't come out earlier in the game. There are... Stuff like the Nazgul can't appear at the chapter in which everyone is in Rivendell, but they can appear for the rest of the game. There's things like that thematic. The Balrog can only be there right in the middle chapters when they're supposed to be under the Misty Mountains. You get the whole idea. For the battlefield, what is valid to play there is determined by that battlefield. It says only elves can come here on this side and only Mordor forces can be on that side, or only Southron forces can be here and, uh, and Gondor forces, or whatever it might be you're very tied as to what's available to play during each of your turns. In terms of how many cards you have to play in each of these chapters, you are also very restricted. <laughs> you're going to draw a hand of cards, and it's going to be a small hand of cards. Now, this is player count dependent, how exactly how this works. The game is taught, for the most part, Within the rulebook, has a four player game. So you split up the two sides and you have particular factions for each person. Someone just has all the Mordor and someone has all the other bad cards. You get the idea. They don't call them bad, let's just call them the other side. That's my cat going to join in the review. Hopefully, not for much longer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> she's cold. But you're not dealing with a lot of cards. We're talking about hand size of three, four, five, that sort of thing. Every time you wish to play a card, it can go to the path, it can go to the battlefield, if it's valid for other those, or it can go into your reserve. And some cards have got powers when they're in your reserve, and some cards are just playing and hoping to build up for something later on. But every time you play a card, you have to cycle a card. And there are two ways, basically, of discarding cards in the game. Whenever you're told to cycle one like this when you play a card, it goes into a discard pile that will be shuffled up and become your draw deck once you go through your deck, which you will do in the game. Or you have to eliminate. When you eliminate cards, as you can imagine, it goes into a different discard part and they are out of the game forever. One of the curious things is that you're very restricted in your hand management here. It should, and it feels like it should be about hand management and building clever combos and deciding I'm going to go for a strong Gandalf combo this game. So I'll I'll play those cards and cycle other ones or I'm going all in Hobbits. I'll play those cards and cycle other ones. But I don't see enough cards to be able to actually intelligently do that. Because card play is so precious. If you are one of the fellowship players in a four-player game, you are playing one or two cards usually on a chapter. That's it. Nine chapters. You don't have time to mess around. An awful lot of the cards that come out, you go, well, I'll put this here and hopefully it'll be good for me later. Mm, That never happened. I'm going to build up an elf army. There are only a couple of fights in which the elf armies can actually take place. Like, if they've gone early, then all your elf cards that are just for fights are just useless. You need to get to know that. There is a part of learning the game and realising that opportunity is gone. In your first play, it just feels like a complete lunacy. Like, how do I know when I can play these cards and when I can't? Which is a slight flaw. On repeat plays, it doesn't become more interesting. You become less frustrated because you're like, well, I know I'm not going to be able to use these elf armies because all the opportunities have gone. But that doesn't make it any better when I'm drawing three cards a turn and two of them are elves I can't use. You're like, why is this game doing this to me? I say that it's interesting for player count. I'll hark back to that. In four-player watering card game, you've got a a once-a-game thing where you can draw three cards, draw one, cycle one, eliminate one. It is only once a game. In the two-player game, your deck is all the factions. Firstly, that helps because... In the four-player game, certain, two of the players at least feel like they're doing very, very little. They have very little to do. It's so situational when they can come in and actually make a difference and actually do anything useful that they do feel very frustrated and peripheral. In the games I've played, I only played it twice, four-player, and then when I'm going to try two-player, it was much better because every turn, you can draw three, cycle one, eliminate one, and keep one. Just that, gives you much more control of your deck management. And this very much should be promoted as a two-player game. If you play a warden card game, four players, and hate it, but if you hate it, you're unlikely to love the two-player game. But if you thought, oh, that was a bit annoying, I wish it was a bit better, play two-player, it is better. And definitely, how yeah, it should have been promoted and pushed. I don't understand why they've gone four-player. But overall, in any player count, the problem I have here is that the designer is playing too much of the game for me. I am too dictated to by the strictures within the game of the chapter system, of the facture system for Battlefield, which is the whole game, Well, this is what I can play, and then by the decks, which tell me, this card is only useful in this very particular circumstance, and you don't know if that circumstance is going to come up. Gandalf staff and Gandalf's hat are going to add to Gandalf, but you may never draw Gandalf at the right time. Given also the two Gandalfs art don't suit each other. One Gandalf the White kills Gandalf the Grey. You know, like, oh, seriously, if I pull out in the last turn a card that's only good for chapters one to four and I haven't seen it before, then it's incredibly frustrating. It's like why, why are you dictating to me so much? The narrative of the story lord of the rings has been tried to be stuck to i should have phrased that better they're trying to stick to the narrative of of the rings far too tightly and what they've done is they've cramped the game space in order to allow space for the narrative but the narrative then is getting in the way of fun and that is no good as much as i love the narrative for lord of the rings I do not love Watering the card game. It is a frustrating experience. Far too few decisions, far too frustrating, far too driven by luck. Two of my five games won by a hill troll getting played on chapter nine is not very heroic because it gave the one power on the path that I couldn't match. Well, the other player couldn't match because I I don't have those cards. It doesn't, they don't, I didn't have, not only that, I didn't have a big chance to build those cards up either. Too frustrating, a 49 for me for War of the Rings Card Game. So if there are any of you that are that interested in the Game Pit Podcast that you remember what we say about games, you will remember that Savannah Park was a tile-laying game that I enjoyed very much last year, and I think it was in the lower reach of my top 10 for the year. I certainly had a lot of fun with it. At Essen this year, Caldera Park has come out. One to four players, 45 minutes. again from Kiesling and Kramer, and from Deep Print games they've done now Renature and Savannah Park and now Caldera Park and I can tell you I've liked all three of them they've all been very decent games including this one so I guess I'll probably better get to the end quite quickly so I've just told you the ending it's the same as Savannah Park in that you're playing hex tiles of animals there are six different animals they come either in ones twos to threes of themselves or in blends of, of the different species of animals And they go out onto a board. In this case, the board is bigger. The the grid is bigger than it was in Savannah Park, and it is more varied. In Savannah Park, it was quite a simple pattern-building game in which you're all following along, choosing the same tiles as each other and, and just making it fit into your pattern, which could become repetitive, but I very much enjoyed it. In Caldera Park, they've mixed it up a bit. They've given you different terrains to play on, and they've given you a different way in which you're going to be dictated to by what tiles you play. Everyone is going to have seven of their 35 tiles always available to them, flipped up at the top of their board. There's going to be five rounds of seven turns each. And on a turn, a player is going to, from the central board, choose one of the seven characteristics available. How's this easy to explain. There's six different types of animals, or there's one with watering holes, right? Watering holes are key to scoring because watering holes multiply the number of animals that are in your biggest group, a contiguous group on the board, once we finish playing. For the types of animals on your turn if you choose one of them you then have either a terrain or a feature that so you say i take the wolf tile and i slide it up and i say right mountains that means everyone if they've got a wolf tile available to them out if they're seven available has to put it onto a mountain somewhere or i could say it must go around a geezer or i can say it must be on a river space because it's a river that runs through the middle of the board and then everyone draws another tile you always have seven available and then the number of possible moves for this round is limited because no one can pick wolf again and can't pick mountain again, for example. So then someone picks bear and puts it on river. So we know that river and bear have gone. So you can see what's narrowing down. For watering hole, watering holes always go anywhere because they're so vital that, yeah, people can with your watering holes. It really does become a bit of a problem. So you're going to do that 35 times. There's other slight twist is that there's weather tiles in the game. Weather tiles do the function that fires did in Savannah Park in that they do not like certain types of animals around them, be it certain numbers of animals, one, two, or three on a tile, or just certain types like goats and wolves don't like being next to this. I can't, goats are in the game. I couldn't remember if goats were in it. They are. I love goats. The thing with the weather tiles is the fires in Savannah Park were always fixed. In Caldera Park, they are going to go in fixed spaces, but they're going to be face down until you pull them beginning of a turn and put them into space and you start and you follow around clockwise there is a pattern to this where you're going and where you want to put them but it is something to be aware of that if you're going next to a weather tile that has not yet been played in weather space there is a risk of the animals you put next to it being killed and it's a bit of chaos that goes in i guess to counter the fact that there is a maybe a bit more control Certainly in lower player counts there's more control over what you're playing. And you could be messed with less in Caldera Park than you can with Savannah Park. Because if you choose a particular tile and you did have the wherewithal to look around and go, this absolutely screws you, you don't want to play this right now. You're causing a lot of trouble for your <laughs> for your colleagues. But in Caldera Park, you can't choose a specific tile, it's a type of tile. And if it is vital to you, you are always trying to keep sort of blockers in place so that one or two vital tiles cannot get possibly put down at a time when you or a place that you do not want them to go while the weather tiles are good for you it's sunny it's got all the animals on there if you can get that into a group or in the middle of, of it'll add one to lots of different species if you can do that that's very good planning you need to kind of If you're really going to maximise your play, almost learn which tiles have got a mixture of animals on so you know that you want those animals somewhere near each other, that's going to help you score points. It's just easier to do it. I don't think it's vital to learn that. It's not going to make a huge difference. If you're talking like high, high level, you want to win everything, there's a little bit of learning to this game. In terms of Savannah Park itself, I find Caldera Park not as free and easy and quick playing. So it doesn't scratch the itch I want scratched by this type of a game. So I don't love it as much as Savannah Park. I am roundly told that I'm a fool by Rachel and I think by Sean as well because I think he quite likes Caldera Park. And I'm told I'm wrong and that this is a better, thinkier game, which you imagine I would go for, but actually I quite like the simplicity of Savannah Park. So there you go. I'm a bit of a clown. Uh, At the end of the day, 73 out of 100 for Caldera Park. Next up is Village Rails, another grid builder. It's two to four players around 45 minutes from Matt Dunstan and Brett J. Gilbert, a successful design partnership and published by Osprey Games. It's a grid builder in which over the course of the game you are going to be drafting 12 track cards. The track cards are going to fit into this grid in which they will start with a particular terrain or feature and they will end in a scoring card. The scoring card in this case the end is always going to earn you money it's going to earn you at least three money but if you fit certain conditions that says stated on the card it will earn you more money why would you want more money because when you are drafting a track card each turn it is small world style drafting there is a column of five cards available if you take the bottom card that is going to be free to you if you take the next card up you must put one coin on the bottom card and then you take the next card. Or if you wish to take four cards up, you put three coins down and take the fourth card. Whenever you draft a card with coins on, you get those coins to help you pay more. Not only do you want coins for the drafting of the track cards, also there are these trips cards, and they are actual scoring points cards. You get a chance to draft one of those per turn. They have a minimum cost of three, and again, it is the small wild star. If you take the bottom one, that's fine. If you wish to take further up the column of available trips cards, you must pay one coin per card, over which you are skipping. What do these chips want from me? They have got various scoring conditions on there. There are different terrains which these track cards portray and the tracks are always in a cross or in two L shapes, meaning they have two ins and two outs and they will always have seven lines starting and seven lines finishing, but the length of them and the way they go will vary. And you're going to try and work out and manipulate the length where they go what they go through what's on them according to the trips cards trips cards will say score twice for all your stations on this line for example which is one of the features that can appear they will say if this only goes through one terrain score seven points so you're trying to do a short one that goes through all the same terrain get one point for every different type of terrain that this particular track this line goes through cool if you can do that do that so if you can manage to match up the appropriate trips with tracks that make sense according to the scoring conditions you're after. There are also things like sidings. The more lines you have with A-sidings on, the more points you can score at the end of the game. There are barns which appear which will help you score points like certain things, say, for example, for making money cards, it might say three if you've got no barns this line, five if you've got a barn, seven if you've got two barns, nine if you've got three more barns this line. So you're looking to build up early a line with barns on to get nine one so you've got more choice in your drafting to put it all in. It is all very lovely. It is all very gentle. It is extremely abstract. It uses well-worn gaming mechanisms to give you a comfortable, familiar experience. In terms of becoming the higher reaches of a tableau building and drafting game. Even for this short playtime, for me, it was a little bit too restricted. I could start off on things which may or may not be valid, depending upon what the trips cards are that come out. And if trips cards come out that suit what I'm doing, great, I'm going to score more points than you. And if they don't, then there we go. In lower player counts, that market doesn't move through very quickly. So the trips cards particularly can get frustrating. At higher player counts, it's very hard to plan your lines. Some cards just appear to be better than others. There are certain cards that people will just always want to go for, including those siding ones, usually. If you're playing with four players, then someone, two, one or two players, are always going to want the sidings, So they will be going quickly. And you do get the same sort of cards end up with money piled up on them. That it doesn't seem to be at least according to what players can work out and how players value it and even sort of run of how valuable these cards are. And that's a consideration because the game does sometimes get a bit slow. You're like, "Mm, I can't really do much exciting here. There are very few exciting turns in Village Rails. At the end of every game, I'm like, that was fun. I had a nice time. I like you did that well. You did that well. I probably didn't do anything very well, but wasn't that lovely? And I will never remember a single game of it, but I'm always happy to play it. It is perfectly decent and it gets a 64 from me for Village Rails. I mentioned Rankster in an essence Treasure Hunt. It's a three to 12 player game, 20 minutes, Ricky Tata, the main games. And I've played it a few times. So I thought it was worth mentioning, but I'm not going to give it a score because uh, Rankster's the game in which three famous people, real or fictional, are drawn out, and then there is a condition. For example, who would make the best vice president? Who would you go for a ride on a motorbike with? Who would you most like to take fashion sense from? And one of the people around the table is the judge, and they decide secretly to rank them first, second, and third. And then everyone else has a conversation, and then they try and come up to a consensus to rank them first, second, or third. And then you flip over the things and say, did we get the same as the judge? Yes or no? If you did, yes. And if you didn't, well, still yes. Because the whole point of Rankster is not to play a game. And I wouldn't really rate it as a game. Mostly because it's an activity. And um, it's fine. It's fun. It's funny. There's memorable situations. You will learn stuff about the people you're playing with. It's one of those that starts a conversation and is very, very light and very sort of throwaway one to play while you're eating or one to play while you're just waiting for food or why do I keep talking about food? One to play, I don't know, while you're sitting around on a train. (laughs) The way in the other week, oh, we talking so much. I don't know. It's certainly not a game that I am going to particularly rush back to or be bothered by. But one of the reasons why I did want to speak about Rankster and whether it's a game or not, that is not a conversation that I often want to get into into in terms of whether something qualifies as something or not is is that does that qualify as a sport is snooker a sport is it diving a sport don't don't ask me is is this thing a game not something i dive into on bgg or in person however i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna do the old plug i'm gonna do the old shilling now there is a book coming out by adam kopinski who's designer of nemesis and loads of other games it's called Board Games on My Mind, and the first chapter is available via the Board and Dice website. There is a publisher called Cozy Coven starting up, which is somehow linked to Board and Dice, and I don't know how. But the first chapter is available, and we got given it also at Essen, and said, "If you read this, if it's of any interest to you, do you mind mentioning it on the podcast?" And I did read it, and then I've been playing Rankster, and Adam Kopinski is sort of an, a sort of is an academic, and has taken an amath- academic view to gaming and game designing i'm not going to do it justice but if you read the first chapter he very much explains why he's written the book and why he thinks the book might be valuable and it's not to teach you how to design a great winning board game it's maybe to just have some thoughts about these games that we spend so long playing and thinking about and to be honest that's not a premise that i was wildly excited about but i did honestly read chapter one and then go there's some interesting stuff in there actually i'm like okay that's something to consider. And the thing that I started considering was, is Rankster a game? And according to what Adam Kubinski writes, it's not. But then you would have to read chapter one to find out why, or possibly you'll pass something different from that text than I did. But it is definitely worth a look. It's coming to crowdfunding sometime in January. I'm sure that you'll see it advertised all over the place. Like I said, Board and Dice website, head there for Board Games of One Mind, chapter one, and give it a look. And then maybe play Rankster and then maybe have a think about whether you think Register is a game or not. Reading this book broke my mind, but it's in a good way. Okay. The last game I am going to talk about is Rove. Rove is one of the button-shy 18-card games. This one is by Dustin Dobson and Milan Zivkovic. It's 15 minutes long. It is a solo-only game. And in it, there are six mods, mod cards. The mods are have all got different movement rules, but they must always stay in a contiguous group. You also are going to attempt to fulfill seven missions. And the way that the missions work are, they give you a a grid layout that has one of the mods and then how the other five mods need to be spatially around it. It doesn't matter what the other five are. It's just this mod needs to be in the bottom left corner with two above it, one to the right, one up from there, and one over there behind the back. The movement cards also have mods on them in a much simpler pattern and they have a lower or a higher movement point value and you have at the start of the game five of them available to you if you're playing normal like a sane person is. If you have got your mods configured onto the pattern that's on the movement card and you choose that movement card, you get to use the higher number of movement points. If you cannot get one of those patterns, you use the lower number of movement points. For each of your movement points, you can use move one mod. They all have different ways in which they move. Some of them want to move diagonally. Some of them want to move in straight lines. Some of them will push mods across as they're going. Some have to jump over a mod before they can move. As well as that, the six different mod cards that are constantly in this grid, uh, the mod is just the name of the cards, the six different mod cards that are in the grid have all got a one-off special power. By using the movement points and the special powers, you're attempting to, to fulfill and achieve the pattern on your current mission. And once you achieve that pattern, you get to draw another mission and you get to draw one movement card. So if I'm using more than one movement card per mission, then your hand size is constantly shrinking and shrinking. It is a movement puzzle with these variables in which, well, maybe I should, on the way to achieving that, I can achieve this movement pattern. I can do that. That'll give me more movement next turn to allow me to fill in and get to the next mission. And then, boom, watch my next mission. Oh, there it is. Oh, how am I going to set up for this? The different ways in which the mods move really create the complete mind flip of this whole thing because they never seem to be where you want them to be. The one that has to jump over, it never seems to be in line. The one that can only move diagonally, oh, trying to think in diagonals and also in orthodox with different cards is so difficult i am so bad at rove <laughs> i said that so much i think i've had a tired month i really don't i've been bad at every game i've played but <laughs> but for rove it is one of those frustrating puzzles that will bring you back to it because you enjoy the frustration of the puzzle and you enjoy the fact that i think i can do better i think i can do better and Sometimes you can, and sometimes just the setup and the way that everything is will just absolutely screw you, and you'll be like, that was so hard, I don't think I could have done that better. But it's just 15 minutes, and it's different every time, and it challenges you. So if you like a puzzle with a win condition, look at Rove. It's a very decent game. It hasn't got the complete magic of the Opelices, the best of the Show games as far as I'm concerned, but it's definitely good enough for a 71, and it's worth it. Your time. I've got a bunch of expansions. I have no idea what they do, but I will be delving into them and there will be more roving going on on my table. So that is five games, one activity, and a book. We've got at well, least the first chapter of a book. I don't know what the rest of the chapters are like, but the first chapter is certainly promising that we have gone over in this episode. Thank you very, very much for joining me. I'll be back hopefully after a much shorter hiatus with some more board game chat for you. In the meantime, head to tower.com for all the gaming goodness you could ever possibly wish for. Thank you. Catch you next time on the Game Pit. Music by E. Jingle Boy, Jingle Boy.